And we welcome you to the Thursday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. Today marks the monthly visit of our friend Nan Calvert from uh, the Root Pike Wind uh, Watershed uh, Network. And uh, Nan has done something that I don't remember her doing in all of the years that she's been part of the morning show. She has lassoed a guest to return just two months after her first appearance because the first appearance was so very, very interesting. Uh, I mean, we've had a lot of repeat guests over uh, over the years, but never somebody who returned in such quick, short order. And it is for good reason, because a couple of months ago, we had a really interesting conversation with Kathleen Thompson, uh, who is a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, about lichens. And it was such an illuminating conversation that Nan wanted to bring her back uh, for a uh, conversation about something closely related. Uh, so first of all, Nan, uh, tell us a little bit more about what you enjoyed so much about that conversation just two months ago, which led you to want to invite Kathleen Thompson back already today. Well, good morning, everybody, and, and thanks, Greg. Um, <clears throat> well, you know, that first conversation about lichens, to me was, as you said, it was so illuminating. It opened up a whole new world, I think, certainly for me, and I hope for for at least one listener, if not everybody who is listening to that conversation, because it's such um, an amazing and intricate and, and fascinating world. And, you know, we don't know, you know, just lay people, if you will, we don't know all that much about them. They're just these sort of crusty, greenish things that grow on bark and, and other things, but they, they have such... Um, such a fascinating evolutionary path. And of, co- of course, they're closely related to fungi or what we call mushrooms commonly. And I wanted Kathleen to come back and talk about those things, um, especially because, you know, this is the time when we have cool weather and we have lots of precipitation and it sets up a perfect uh, situation to see all kinds of fungi and also lichens like this weather as well. So that's why I wanted Kathleen to come back on and she has such a passion and such a, a breadth of knowledge about these things. It's just so exciting. Mm. I quite agree. So Kathleen Thompson, we're happy to have you back on the morning show. Thank you for joining us. Uh, it's my pleasure to be back. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm, I'm honored to be here again. Uh, before we get into this uh, kind of intense conversation about mushrooms, um, Maybe you could just uh, remind us, and I don't remember how much time we took talking about this a couple months ago, how you ended up focusing so much of your time and your energies in this general field of, of, of research and, and study. Uh, what was the initial draw for you? Oh, that's a, a great question. And it's, you know, it's very fitting with the way our conversation has flown as well, actually. So... Um, I took a course during my undergraduate years at Iowa State University. I took a course on lichens and bryophytes, which are mosses, liverworts, tiny little plants that tend to grow alongside lichens. Um, And initially at the time, I didn't really know much about either of those groups of organisms. And the main draw to the class really was that we got to go on field trips outside and that there weren't any big heavy exams. It was a very hands-on class. And I was like, that sounds like what I'm interested in doing. And that class really opened my eyes to so many things, but really I found a passion for lichens in that course. 
And following that, um, so I started doing a master's on lichens with the instructor of that course, Dr. Jim Colbert at Iowa State University. And during my master's is when really my interest in, as I call non-lichenized fungi or things like mushrooms and, and other fungal growth forms that don't associate with algae and photosynthetic partners is when that really flourished. Um, I think part of it was actually getting a dog as well and taking her for walks in the woods at like the same tract of woods every day. And you just really get a sense of what pops up, you know, and maybe is even gone two days, one day afterwards, you really get to see some of that. And so I, I once again was exposed to a world that I just had never spent much time paying attention to. So uh, maybe a, a little point of clarification is in order. And it's, this is a very elementary question along the lines of Dolphins aren't fish, and spiders aren't bugs, and so on. Uh, so these things called lichens and mushrooms, we sort of feel like they're plants, but my understanding is that they are not plants, at least not in the purest sense of the word. How would we relate lichens and mushrooms to plants? Are they, are they plants, but kind of a strange kind of plant, or not plants at all? And, and what is the distinction uh, that... that causes that that differentiation yeah that's a a, a truly a, a beautiful question greg and i also want to point out that that is not at all an elementary question because we don't talk about fungi much in even elementary schools high school you know um it's one of those those taxonomic groups that even oftentimes in intro biology classes unfortunately is it it sort of maybe gets its its day or its moment to be mentioned but doesn't really get good coverage. Um, and we grow up knowing a lot about animals and plants a little more intuitively because we tend to interact with those a little more. So, um, so not at all an elementary question. In fact, if I were leading a botany class, say 50 years ago um, at this point, I maybe have, would have even talked about fungi as being seedless plants. We would have grouped them with mosses and ferns and things like that because they reproduce by spores and other reasons, but they were, they were taught for a long time as being plants. And so even relatively recently in human history, has it sort of been recategorized as a as a different group? Um, you know, of course, their evolutionary history it's always been a different group, but our recognition of it being a different group is more is a more modern concept in some ways. Um, but that's a, a great question in terms of disentangling these groups of what makes them different. How do we know that they're different? Um, and one of you know, it kind of breaks down into to two different pathways. First of all, now that we have access to genetic sequencing tools and DNA information, um, we find that they cluster a little bit differently. So when we read that data, they group into a different group than plants altogether. And that's really all I'll say about, about that is they just look different when you look at their DNA. But we've actually, even before we had access to that, there were a lot of clues that people were picking up on to say, these are actually a different group of organisms. Um, one of those being that fungi don't make their own food using chloroplasts. They don't perform photosynthesis like plants do, where they're gathering energy from the sun, doing some kind of chemical mixture with that and water inside their leaves, and they create essentially food sugars for themselves to eat. Um, fungi don't do that. They have to eat something else, just like animals. You know, we have to go out and find other organic sources to eat. Um, so they're oftentimes found on rotting logs because they're decaying the materials within that wood. Sometimes they're found growing out of the ground. Maybe they're eating other organic molecules in the soil, or they may even have a close relationship with plant roots where they're sort of trading for the, the sugars derived from those plants and they're giving them access to water 
and mineral nutrients like nitrogen and things that plants need. Um, maybe they're parasitizing animals. Um, you know, even ringworm, we tend to think of as a worm, but that's actually a fungus that lives on human skin, animal skin, and is actually eating the keratin in your skin. So they're always on some kind of source that they're breaking down essentially. So that's a major distinction between those, between those groups. Um, they also do some, some different things. They store, I believe, sugars and stuff differently as well um, than plants. They don't store it in glucose. I believe they store it in no, I shouldn't, I shouldn't get into the specifics of that or I'm going <laughs> to, on the spot, I'll forget the details, I'm sure. But um, there's some other things that they do quite differently than plants as well. Um, but we tend, to, we've always tended to group them as plants because they grow alongside plants. They also don't move in the sense that we tend to think of animals moving around and locomoting, if you will. Um, so there's definitely argument to whether fungi move and are motile, but, um, but they don't move around like we tend to think about them. So they look, they just seem intuitively vegetative to us. But once you start looking at some different, different characters, we tend to find that they're, they're actually a lot different. And it even makes sense, you know, some of these characteristics that they're more similar to animals, because when we look at DNA information, we tend to find that fungi are actually much more closely related to animals. So as us as humans, than they are to plants altogether. So what we initially thought was one group, yeah, we were grouping ferns and mushrooms in the same group. Mushrooms are actually much more closely related to us as humans than they are to ferns altogether. So it's pretty wild. It's awesome. Fascinating. So would it be, would it be fair to say that uh, the typical mushroom and, and, and these other organisms that you were talking about are in a sense parasites? They certainly can be. That's one of the many ecological roles that they fill. Um, so roles, how they're interacting with other species. Uh, many species do act as parasites on plants and animals and other fungi even. Nan, you'll love this. There's actually a whole sort of cohort or group of fungi that act as lichen parasites. So it's other non-lichenized fungi that parasitize the fungi in lichens and they can be truly beautiful. There's one species that you can find around here. It's not super common, but common enough just to always keep me looking for it, but it's bubblegum pink and it looks like little pink sugar granules on top of certain lichens. And once you, once you see one of them, I feel like your eyes are always looking, just kind of coasting over bark, looking for a hint of bright pink, just in case. And they're very cute, so cute. For those of you just joining us, we are so happy to have back on the morning show with Nan Calvert today, Kathleen Thompson, a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And uh, she was with us two months ago to talk about uh, a fascinating uh, organism, the, the lichen. And today we are talking about a, a, an adjacent topic, uh, namely mushrooms. Mushrooms and toads, toadstools, I should think, um, there's another distinction that is probably worth clarifying. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So even I've used in this conversation have used the word mushroom pretty generally speaking to kind of talk about any fruiting body essentially, which is actually something else we could unpack here is, is what does a mushroom actually do? What's the role? Um, but the, the term mushroom actually has a, a specific definition once you get into the field of mycology, which is the study of fungi. Um, so a, a true mushroom um, has specific parts. So it has the kind of characteristic cap. It has the stalk. 
Um, and sometimes it can be modified with other additional little features, making it a true complete mushroom, but that's the general mushroom. So very similar to the mushrooms you put on your pizza, although they're very tiny. If you think about portobello mushrooms, they have that big cap. They at one point had a really big stalk. That's, a, that's an actual mushroom growth form. But once you actually get into mycology, you find that we have a whole slew of other names, just like any you know, biological field. We have a whole new vocabulary to better describe all types of, all types of fungal morphologies or, or body characteristics. So there's jelly fungi, which when they're hydrated, they're super gelatinous. Um, and we're getting into a season where you can start to see those a lot more. They can be bright orange, um, oftentimes brown. If you're familiar with wood ear mushrooms at all, um, they're oftentimes used in Asian cooking and in soups and things, um, wood ear mushrooms. Uh, those can be, when you find them hydrated, they're super gelatinous. But once they've dried down, they're almost like like a shrinky dink consistency where they've shrunken up a lot and they're very plastic feeling. But then when they rehydrate, you can rehydrate those. They just become really full and voluminous and, and gelatinous. They're really, oh, they're so fun to find. You know, that's one too, if you're, especially if you're introducing, well, people new to fungi, but children to fungi too. Those are fun because they're just, uh, hmm. just so different. You know, they just feel so unearthly sometimes. Um, but, you know, they can take so many shapes, like stink horns are something completely different looking. They pop out of the ground. Um, puff balls, which maybe people are familiar with, they can get to be the size of like a beach ball, you know, and they're just full of spores. So if you ever see what looks like a neglected soccer ball in a forested field, you might actually be finding a giant, a giant puff ball, a giant um, fungal fruiting body, if you will. Um, so yeah, that distinction, you know, people use the term mushroom so generally that sometimes I do as well, just so, you know, we're all talking in some ways about the same thing. We're talking about a fungal fruiting body, but when you actually start exploring mycology, I can take that word mushroom, you know, finger quotations here and expand that into a whole variety of terms to better describe some of those different shapes. Hmm. So when we use the, for instance, the term toadstool, is that just a type of mushroom? It's like a subset of the wor larger world of mushrooms? A toadstool, usually it's, it's more of a, a general term that's used, and that's usually describing the mushroom shape, the, the cap with the stalk oh. underneath. Um, you know, some of that kind of comes from like the, like the fairy tale lore of like fairies sitting on mushrooms yeah. and toads sitting on mushrooms. Although I've seen plenty of adorable photos of frogs and toads actually sitting on top of mushrooms. And it is quite delightful as someone who also really loves frogs. It's just um, mm. too much for my heart, really. So, <laughs> so in some ways that's a, a folkier term and maybe less of a scientific term. Yeah. Yeah. Toadstool is not a scientific category um, name like that, but it's one that's also generally used and, and can probably describe multiple different types of fruiting bodies, sure. Right. The classic mushroom, it, it always strikes me that one of the interesting things about it is it feels like they, the, the, the stalk and the cap tend to snap together. I mean, almost like tinker toys or something. I mean, much different than if you try to take a typical small branch and break it off of a tree. I mean, it, that, that's, that seems like an attachment mechanism that's completely different from the way a mushroom cap is attached to the stalk. But maybe that's just certain classic mushrooms where there is that relationship between those two bodies, uh, where, the, where, the, where they fit together in that kind of interesting way, where they really are rather easily and cleanly separated from each other. Or it seems like it. I mean, am I just, am I making sense? 
Yeah. Yeah. I totally think I get what you're talking about. I mean, especially as someone who, you know, consumes a lot of fungi and cooks mushrooms a lot, you know, you're oftentimes you're breaking that, that stalk or stem away from the cap as well. And I think that has a lot to do, especially in this comparison between that and like snapping a tree branch off a tree, which doesn't have that same kind of satisfying, like snap, you know, it gets all twiggy and woody and it's hard to break off there. They have very different chemistries. So one kind of defining feature coming back to like fungi in general, and granted, a lot of some of these have some wiggle room. There's some fungi that don't have this and it's for said, but um, most fungi have a compound called chitin in their cell wall. And it's the same, it's a really tough polymer or a really tough molecule. It's the same thing actually that makes beetles. So insects being animals, again, we're, you know, making a connection to animals. It's the same thing that makes beetle shells so tough and crunchy when you accidentally step on one. Um, it's that same tough compound. And that's in the cell walls of, of fungal cells, most fungal cells. Um, so that compound is going to act a little bit differently than the tough lignin that's super hard to degrade um, in, in plant cells. So we have a little bit of a chemical distinction, but I'm no biochemist in that way. So, you know, expanding on that would probably be out of my realm. Also, I think the way that they, the way that their cells are oriented. So plant cells oftentimes have this much more kind of longitudinal growth, like they're, they're vessels that are carrying water and dissolved sugar nutrients and things are much more longitudinal. So I think snapping something at a certain point like that becomes a little more challenging just based on the cellular architecture in a way too. But yeah, it's definitely, I mean, in general though, thinking about the kind of even like if we're talking about human senses, right? Like feeling fungi and kind of, you know, figuring out how they look are and, and feel different is much different than plants, right? Like plant leaves. And if we're talking about woody plants, like trees and stems, it's so much different than when you interact with a, a mushroom. And I encourage any listeners too, if you ever put mushrooms on your pizza, um, which is a common way that people sometimes interact with fungi on a, on a regular basis is cut those open, feel them, you know, like uh, just get a better sense for them and how they're different to the plants and, and even animals, right. That you interact with more daily. You know, one of the common mushrooms, if you will, uh, that we see is something that we call turkey tails, mm -hmm. uh, which can be very, very beautiful. But um, when they're not particularly hydrated, they're very tough, almost woody, you know, leathery. But when they're hydrated, they're very, when you, the surface is very soft, almost like suede. Uh, and and they're, they're very different than, say, you know, a puffball or, or some other kind of stalked mushroom. Can you talk a little bit about turkey tails and um, where do they fit in in the mushroom family? Absolutely. Oh, turkey tail is such a, a good one too. And I'm, I'm just so excited. It's raining out my window right now, I have to add. And so I'm just so excited because the temperatures are warmer. The rain is here. Like this is a perfect, perfect spring day to lead to a really good spring and hopefully following mushroom season. So I hope we'll see a lot of these things we're talking about. Um, turkey tail. So for listeners, if you're not familiar with turkey tail, turkey tail tends to grow in these what we call rosettes, meaning sometimes these kind of like spiraled, flat lobed surfaces, which I know might be hard to visualize. So Google a picture of turkey tail if you want more information, but they usually have a white rim along the outside. And they'll also have these concentric bands of color along the inside. So they look like these beautiful fans almost um, in a way when you see them growing. And they can be 
shades of reddish brown or kind of more like gray and blue or a mix of those. They are, they're very variable in their color, but so beautiful. And like Nan mentioned, very velvety on top too, when you get close and, and give them some attention. Um, so turkey tails are a little different than other fungi as when you flip them over, or at least I shouldn't say different than other fungi, but different than some of the mushrooms we tend to think about that come to mind where they have gills on the lower surface or really thin sheets of, of fungal flesh along the bottom that are in like almost like pages of a book. So turkey tail, when you flip them over, they actually have a bunch of tiny little holes in them. Um, and so if you were to use a magnifying glass, you'd see it, it would just look like little dots all over the surface. And those function very similarly to the gills, which we haven't really gotten into, but both of those surfaces are really, what they're doing is they're making spores, tiny, tiny, tiny little dispersal units of fungi that are meant to either catch a breeze or catch water attached to an animal. You know, they have many different mechanisms, but, you know, their whole goal is to get somewhere else and start a brand new whatever that species is. So in this case, out of those tiny little holes are coming little spores. They're aiming to catch a breeze, find another suitable decaying log to grow on and start a brand new turkey tail individual in that way. Um, but your, your comment about, you know, these are so tough and leathery and that's different than a lot of other ones. These are different. So unlike, unlike the jelly fungi, which you can, they can dry out and you can rehydrate them and they become really gelatinous again and they dry out and they can kind of go back and forth. Turkey tails, they first emerge when they're first fresh, when they're brand new, they are much more um, kind of that, that, I don't want to say classic fungal feeling because that's not very descriptive, but they're much more um, hydrated and soft and supple. You can kind of bend them like almost like leather still, but they're, they're very like a soft treated leather in a way. Um, so they just have a different consistency than a lot of other fungi in general, but as they age and as they dry out, they will become really, really tough. You won't be able to bend them. They'll be really, really brittle. They'll lose kind of their coloring as well. So you may see something that looks like this rosette fan shape um, fungus, but if it's pure white, usually that's mean it's from a previous season and it's just old, but it's, it doesn't disappear like some mushrooms where within a day they've turned to black goo and they've, you know, melted into your mulch bed. These ones stay around a while, even though they're not, they're not actively doing much at that point anymore. Did I get every part of your question, Nan? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. You know, uh, th this world of fungi is, is fascinating because um, there's so much folklore around these kinds of things. Um, and one little bit of folklore is a fairy ring, which I'm sure you've heard of, right? Yeah. Um, and so many, many, many years ago, uh, we were in Falk Park, uh, which is in Oak Creek, um, and we found a pink fairy ring. <laughs> and I've never seen one again. I've never seen a, a light pink mushroom, small balls um, before. And um, yeah, I, I think, I think because, you know, mushrooms have been around for such a long time and humans have relied on them for food and other things. There, there's so much fascinating folklore stories, um, myths and misconceptions, but, but it is really interesting and fascinating. Oh my gosh, absolutely. I mean, that was exactly my thought when you mentioned the folklore as well is it, it's interesting as you're reading, you know, historically humans have had, you know, probably a much more, and even in other parts of the world more modernly, right? Um, humans have a much 
more positive relationship with fungi. And I think that's actually coming around. You're seeing that much more in the United States right now as well as this sort of this fascination that's blooming and also in this more positive way. Like, you know, people will come up to me all the time talking about fungi and be like, I, I think fungi can save the world, you know, which is a lot to unpack there. But I think what they're meaning is that like, there's so much potential here. There's so much we can do with these things that previously we were unaware of. Um, and I think that's so true. And it's interesting to read about in, in folklore, because I feel like you feel this tension of like this sort of deep respect for fungi, knowing that there are species that, a very small amount can actually kill a human. So yes, there is like reason to be respectful and cautious of fungi as well and know what you're doing. But also this sort of like mythical and mystical like awe of these creatures as well is, you know, I and I just kind of in some ways love that dichotomy because, you know, that sort of respect and, and stuff is different than a fear-based model that I think we've been operating on for, for a long time as well. Um, and like I said, that comes from a good place, but I guess for listeners reading too, this is often a common question I get is, you know, whether you can touch fungi, like I was encouraging everyone to touch fungi. And yes, there's really only a few species that when ingested can actually kill you. There are more that if ingested, it can give you stomach upset, you know, and if you're already dehydrated, that can lead to more issues. But like, for the most part, touching, fun- actually for all fungi, for the most part, like touching them looking at them, observing them, you're not going to have any adverse reactions. Of course, since I'm giving this advice to people out there, if you know you have a mushroom reaction, that might be different. Like I, and you're actually allergic to fungi, that could be different. But no, I encourage people to get out there and touch the mushrooms growing in their yard. Don't eat them and consume them unless you know what you're doing, but touch them, look at them, observe them. Um, some of them smell interesting, like bleach or like cucumbers. Um, there's a whole list of different fungal scents and stuff as well that are used in identification. But uh, yeah, you can you can absolutely play with fungi a bit and 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 be safe. I think one interesting thing to do is make spore prints from you know because they all have different the the quality and the color and all that sort of thing is different from one species to the next and. And that can actually um, help uh, you identify certain mushrooms. Is that true? Absolutely, yes. So what Nan's talking about in making a spore print is if you were to take, especially let's say we're talking about a mushroom that has a is an actual mushroom. It has a cap and a stalk. And if you were like, as Greg was talking about, you pop that cap off of there and you put it the gill side down, so the bottom side with those kind of book pages of gills, you put that side down on, some people use glass because then you can use any color, but um, a piece of white paper, black paper, whatever you have, really. Um, You put that downside on there and sometimes cover it with a bowl too to keep the wind from blowing too much stuff away. But wait a few hours, come back and check it, maybe even overnight. And that, that mushroom will have dropped those spores off of its gills or out of its pores if we're talking about a turkey tail. And you can actually see the color of those spores and it makes a beautiful print of the gills and such as well. So it's, it is like, as Nana said, it's a, it's a beautiful activity and it really makes lovely, lovely art. We're speaking today on the morning show with Kathleen Thompson, a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, and we are talking today about mushrooms, a related conversation to two months ago when we talked about uh, lichens. So uh, Nan Calvert uh, so enjoyed that conversation, as did I, that she invited Kathleen Thompson uh, to return for this uh, conversation that we are enjoying today. Kathleen Thompson, you just talked about how we, in general, don't need to be fearful of, of mushrooms, 
But of course, as you did point out, there are a few mushrooms that that are essentially poisonous. I mean, one really should not ingest. And and I've, uh, you know, someone, for instance, owns a couple of inquisitive golden retrievers. I'm always worried about the mushrooms that they find and are they going to find and ingest a mushroom that might might make them sick. For those relatively few mushrooms that should not be ingested probably by uh, man or beast, uh, what is it that tends to make those particular mushrooms poisonous? I mean, what is the quality of those particular mushrooms that, that create the problem? Yeah, excellent question. So, you know, just like it comes to you know, the question of can I eat it or not, it really comes down to what species are you talking about? So, so yes, there are, there are a number that you can actually eat, but you need to make sure that you know that you have that species because the other side of it is the ones that you can't eat. Um, that's really for a variety of reasons. So a lot of the ones that can actually cause serious damage, like eat, ingesting a, a bit can kill you. They produce a, a compound within this general group of compounds called mycotoxins, myco meaning fungi toxins, meaning toxins. Um, and so those, you know, there's a variety of those as well, but one of the main ones, like if you think of the characteristic mushroom, like even the Mario mushroom, right? It's the red cap with the white dots, the white stem, um, the classic toadstool, if you will. So that mushroom is in a genus or a group of fungi called the Amanitas. And there are members within that group of the amanitas that produce something called amatoxins and amatoxins can be really deadly, um, especially to humans and probably other mammals and things as well, other animals. Um, so in that case, it's a, it's a toxin that your body can't process that I'm not sure if it affects your liver or exactly what happens after that, but, um, but that can lead to a fatal reaction. There's other groups though, as well. So, um, in the inky caps, if maybe you've, when I said something previously about a mushroom popping up in your mulch bed and within a day it turns to black gelatinous goo and just disappears almost. So there's a whole bunch of mushrooms in that group. Um, but they often, I think all of them actually in that group, um, produce a compound that if you're, if you have ingested alcohol anywhere from 24 hours prior to up to, they say even up to 72 hours after. Basically, if that mushroom is in your system when alcohol is also in your system, it inhibits your body from making aldehyde dehydrogenase. So essentially that alcohol is just floating through your body as a toxin causing havoc as well and not processed in the normal way that our body is able to process it. So the most interesting part to me is that um, one of the mushrooms in that group the um, the shaggy mane, also sometimes just called the inky cap, is a common edible. And um, people collect that one and eat it. But you need to know the caveat of that you, you can't have that dinner with a beer or something like that as well. Or you can be causing your liver a lot of a lot of extra damage. Um, so that's that one is edible, but only it's like a context dependent edible. So these work in different ways. Usually it's like a, you know, a biochemical reaction of how that how that works. Um, there's another one called chicken of the woods, which it's, it grows in these big kind of rosettes again. Um, so these sort of lobed circular patterns and it is neon orange. And depending on the species, it can have a fluorescent sulfur yellow bottom. So keep your eyes open for those this summer. They are truly wonderful to find. And if you're into foraging, of course, make sure you identify with someone who knows what they're doing. Um, but it can be a truly, it's called chicken of the woods for a reason. It is very, very tasty. But, um, but that one, I, you know, even when I got started getting into foraging, 
I would hear of a lot of people who said, oh, I have, I tend to have an allergic reaction to that one. That one hurts my stomach. So, you know, on this idea of foraging, just like even with plants or something as well, the first time you're trying something, have a small bit for a meal, wait 48 hours, make sure everything seems fine before you sort of ingest more of that. Um, Cause just like with plants, some people have allergies to different things as well. So make sure it's not going to upset your stomach. Mm. Um, but I would, he- I would hear of, you know, like I knew of three people, which seemed like a lot that said that they got stomach aches from that. And it turns out that um, that one can grow on both deciduous trees and coniferous trees. And apparently this is, you know, I don't know that this has actually been tested in any kind of study in a way, but just based on, on recognizing patterns is that, people who tend to eat it coming off of coniferous trees tend to have more of an adverse reaction to it than off of deciduous trees. So once again, that fruiting body is, is growing out of that tree, probably absorbing some of those tough chemicals that are in coniferous trees that make them hard for any kind of organism to break down. Uh, And that is probably causing an adverse stomach reaction in people who consume that. Is hen of the woods the same as chicken of the woods? Hen of the woods is actually is a totally different species. So it produces those rosettes a little bit different looking, but it's much more of a drab, light brown, still very beautiful, but um, less sort of flamboyant in color than the chicken of the woods. And that one will grow usually at the base of oaks. So not so much on the actual dead wood, um, but at the base of oaks. Um, it, I guess it is usually kind of coming from the roots and things like that, but, um, but you'll find those at the base of trees and they're also, oh my goodness, so tasty. Yeah, they are, they are really good. Um, if I have a minute, you know, we've talked a lot about mushrooms and different mushroom structures, but I think one thing that oftentimes surprises people when they're learning about fungi is that the little mushroom or even large mushroom, if we're talking about a giant puffball, that part that you see above ground is actually only a very small part of the whole fungus's body. So we tend to think of that as being the whole organism. Like if I picked that mushroom out of the ground that I've taken the entire organism, it's like de-rooting an entire plant out of the ground, but this is actually very different. Um, So underground or within whatever substrate we're talking about, let's say this, this hypothetical mushroom is growing out of the soil. Underground, that mushroom is actually connected to a vast network of fungal cells that are these long thread-like cells. You can't really see them with the naked eye unless they sort of amass together and you get thousands of them in your hand and then you can see something. But under a microscope, it's these long chains of long filamentous cells um, that can be humongous. I mean, it really is something called the humongous fungus because they found by doing genetic testing on mushrooms above ground, they actually found that they were all from the same individual. And this is estimated to be like four square miles or something like that, estimated to be over a thousand years old and weigh thousands of tons of pounds when all put together. So um, it's it's truly remarkable. We tend to even think of fungi as being small and inconspicuous or something, but really under our feet, there are these vast, vast organisms that we are interacting with all the time, right? We don't sense them as much, but they sense us moving through the woods uh, more than we'll ever know. But um, so really the mushrooms are just there to disperse spores. That's part of their like reproductive life cycle is they pop above ground or come out of the rotting log, whatever they're growing on. And their whole purpose is to disperse spores to start new individuals from that of that species. So I hate to sometimes use plant like analogies because it gets a little confusing, but 
in a very general sense, it's like thinking of an apple on an apple tree. The whole point of that apple is to be there to look tasty. We pick it, eat it, chuck that core a mile away, and that seed has now moved a long ways to start a new individual. So that's it's the same same general purpose that that mushrooms serve as well. What about this part of the, the mushroom that is into the soil that we typically never see and typically never even think about? What kind of function does it have as in terms of the soil? Uh, what is the interaction? In what way does it make a difference, I would presume, for the better in terms of a soil being uh, healthy? Absolutely. Yeah, great question. Um, so the function of that first for the for the fungi, I guess I stopped at what the function of the mushroom was even. So that underground vast network of cells is coming back to this analogy. It's really like the apple tree itself. It's it's the part that's persisting, overwintering is there year after year. And really what it's there for is to feed, to get energy, um, to get energy, to make those mushrooms that disperse spores and continue that life cycle over and over. So if we're talking about this same hypothetical mushroom um, or fungal system, that underground net, which we call collectively a mycelium, um, and each of those individual strands is a, a hyphal strand. So when we're talking about the mycelium in general, what it's doing is it's exuding these water-soluble enzymes into the soil. And let's say this one is breaking down organic matter that's in the soil and living as a saprobe. It's exuding these enzymes, externally breaking those compounds down into something small and tasty for that fungus, and then absorbing them back into the body. Um, so that's the role that it fills. You know, that's the, the, the goal that it's after is getting nutrient, getting food and nutrients. Um, but in terms of thinking about this more collectively, like an ecological lens, as you were mentioning, Greg, this soil matrix, um, there, that really helps perform a lot of different functions. So there's nutrient movement through soil. So fungi are accessing nutrients, um, you know, moving carbon and nitrogen around, which becomes, once we start thinking about that on different scales, becomes really important in terms of how we're thinking about global climate change even, right? Fungi are some of the main movers of those kind of nutrients, but even too taking really tough organic compounds that nothing else can break down. I think there might be a few species of bacteria that can break down lignin, but for the most part, that really tough compound that makes trees as solid and sturdy as they are, fungi are the main decomposers of those kind of materials. And really, if you if we even think back in history, right, there was a, um, ugh, I always struggle putting the names on these periods, but there, there was a, a period of time where we had a lot of coal formation and that's where, the, that's where all of our coal is. But there was a pretty stark end to that. And if you line that up with the evolutionary tree, that's exactly where a certain type, certain group of fungi, the white rot fungi came around and were able to break down lignin. Because then after that, you didn't have all these trees that were building up in this swampy area or all this woody material. Fungi were breaking that down and moving those nutrients back into the system, either releasing those into the soil matrix and making them freely available or associating, starting to associate with plants where they're trading this a little more connectedly. Um, so we really can thank them for the, the actual end of our, our coal deposits there, but we can also actually thank them for the fact that we have sustainable forests. Because otherwise what would happen is all these nutrients would get locked up in this woody lignified tissue that nothing else can break down. They would all, you know, once those trees had died for whatever reason, they'd all fall down and we'd essentially have this pile of matchstick trees that 
unless maybe a fire came through, there really wouldn't be a lot of other ways that those nutrients could move through. And even if it was a fire, that a lot of them would be volatilized and lost into the atmosphere and not present in that ecosystem. So the, the roles that they play, even, even more generally, right, as, as decomposers, um, which you know, we could even talk about that for a whole, a whole one hour segment easily, but um, they're important partners for so many um, animals in these things we call mutualisms or symbioses. So lichens in general, right, which cover 8% of our global surface area. So they seem small, but they're actually, uh, they play a huge, a huge role in terms of carbon sequestration and all kinds of things. Um, they're, they're just performing a ton of roles that oftentimes go unnoticed but really have just an enormous impact on the world that we see today. We are, of course, mostly talking about and thinking about mushrooms as they kind of spontaneously pop up in the natural world. But for instance, when we go to the grocery store and buy mushrooms there, and I'm not saying that's the best way to find mushrooms to uh, to use for your cooking, but for but when people do that, have those mushrooms, generally speaking, come from a mushroom farm? I mean, are there people who actually raise mushrooms uh, the way other crops are raised? And what does that look like? Or how does that work? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, So I think we're just, it seems like we're just starting, or maybe I'm just starting to notice it more. You know, it's hard to sometimes disentangle, like, I've been studying fungi now for quite a few years. But you know, my sort of perception and recognizing different things related to fungi has grown as well. So, but I think it's safe to say that there has been much more of a a kind of boom in the Midwest in terms of mushrooms farms. Um, Even when I was first getting into these, I maybe knew of one or something in the area, you know, but now there's, there's a number that I could, that I could list. Um, So out East, Pennsylvania in particular has been like the mushroom growing capital of the United States for a long time. And if we think even more globally, um, I know China in particular has been doing, you know, does a lot more mushroom cultivation than we do here in the United States. But um, the pe- or the mushrooms that you're buying at the at the grocery store are the little buttons, um, either the the white buttons or the brown buttons, which are the exact same species. Um, just so everyone knows, those are almost always produced out in Pennsylvania. They have giant farms, um, like you said, and these are going to look different than most other farms you think of. So like I said, fungi don't need sunlight to grow. So this isn't rows, you know, outdoor rows like you would see in a corner soybean field. Usually they're inside in big trays that are stacked floor to ceiling, um, filled with some kind of nutrient rich compost. Oftentimes it's manure that they're grown on as well, or some kind of a mix of those kind of things. Um, And 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 they're grown in these giant trays in these large rooms. I know if you look online, there's some really lovely videos of, of mushroom farms. I'm trying to remember if it was like NPR or PBS of one that has a really good one, if you want to see what that looks like. But, you know, um, some of the ones that are maybe less on this huge industrial scale and a little more smaller local scale or do more specialty mushrooms where they're doing not just like slats and slats of little button mushrooms, but they're growing 10 different varieties of fungi or something that setup probably looks a little bit different, um, differently. I know some of the ones I've toured, they have more like different rooms and they'll actually even have plastic totes that are full of straw or wood chips and they've drilled holes in the sides and you can see clusters of mushrooms growing out of these plastic totes. Um, sometimes depending on the scale, if you do it at home, you can do it in a plastic bag that has a little breathable air filter that lets some airflow grow through. So 
even thinking about, you know, like we can talk about farming on that scale, but we can also talk about home gardens or even like indoor container gardening. Fungi can actually be scaled to all of those different scales as well. And there's a number of places, like one in um, Wisconsin called Field and Forest, um, that you can order little kits. I think that, you know, they're probably around $30 or something around that price range. Um, and you can actually grow these in your, in your kitchen and they don't need a bright window for sun. You know, it's some of the, so as someone who lives in a, a tiny apartment that has one window and doesn't get great sunlight, growing mushrooms in here would be a, a lovely option as opposed mm. to trying to grow actual vegetables I'm trying to eat. So um, yeah, it's, it definitely exists. Looks a little bit different than, than what we think of when it comes to farming, but um but yeah, it's starting to grow and I'm super excited to see that. Wow. Well, you know, we have a mushroom farm in our midst. Uh, it's on the corner of Highway 50 and Highway P in Burlington, ah, um, yeah. River Valley Ranch. And it's pretty amazing. You can buy kits there to grow mushrooms. You can get as much mushroom compost as you want for your gardens or whatever it is that you're doing. So it's a wonderful place. Lots of different kinds of mushrooms. Uh, and other foods. And I, I encourage people to go and check it out. It's wonderful. wonderful. Great. Kathleen Thompson, this has been absolutely fascinating. Nan Calvert was right. It was time to have you back. And uh, this has been just a terrific conversation. And I think you've just, we've of course just scratched the surface of these fascinating organisms and what they mean in the natural order of things. So uh, I suspect we'll have a few people doing some Googling, some uh, trips to the library and whatnot uh, in order to learn still more about uh, the, the beautiful and fascinating mushroom. I really appreciate you taking uh, time out of your schedule uh, to join us for this conversation. It was a real pleasure. Well, Greg and Nan, it's 100% my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me here and, and giving me yet another opportunity to pontificate about the things I love so much. So <laughs> Very <for> good. <laughs> Great. Nan, I can give you two minutes for your announcements. Excellent. <laughs> I just want to let everybody know that Hawthorne Hollow is having a garlic mustard pull party and luncheon on Saturday, April 30th from 9 a.m. to noon. You'll join friends and family and nature enthusiasts to clear garlic mustard at, and make way for spring ephemerals, which are so important. And remember, garlic mustard is really bad for the soil and destroys what those wonderful fungi do for us underground. So it's very important. Uh, to get rid of garlic mustard. Uh, there will be a lovely lunch made of, in part, garlic mustard entrees. Um, and uh, you're just going to have a lot of fun and be doing something really great uh, for the soil and for our area and for Hawthorne Hollow. Secondly, the Eco Justice Center is having a seed giveaway on Saturday, April 23rd from noon until 2 p.m. They'll be giving seeds away to, uh, you know, packets and for vegetable gardens and hands-on activities for the whole family, uh, growing food that you can eventually eat. It'll be a wonderful thing. Just go to their website uh, and you can figure out what to do after that. That's it. Excellent. Thank you so much, Nan, for, uh, for today's morning show. Uh, again, Kathleen Thompson, we appreciated you joining us to share all of your excitement and expertise. And Nan, we'll see you in May. Thank you again for today's morning show. Thanks. Thanks, Kathleen. I think you should write a book. <laughs>